You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, October 31st, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. Father, we thank you for the privilege uh, that you have given us again uh, by the work of your Holy Spirit and the kindness of your grace and mercy to draw us together this morning. Uh, We ask, uh, Lord, we we plead that you would do that miracle that only you can do in this little bit of time we have together, that your spirit will work through your word to help us to see, to truly see and to believe in your son, Jesus, that as we see him, you would continue to work in us to make us bit by bit, glory by glory, more and more into his image and likeness. Well, we ask this morning that you would do that, which only you can do in his good name for his glory and our joy. Amen. Uh, according to history, uh, it was 504 years ago today that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, igniting what would come to be known as the Protestant Reformation. And, and also, for those of you who didn't know, actually starting what we know as Halloween, right? Yeah, that didn't land on 815 either, so <laughs> don't go tell people it's, that's where Halloween comes from. Um, that's not where Halloween comes from. But... All Lutheran historians and church historians actually agree that Luther did choose All Hallows' Eve specifically to nail his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg because he knew he could get the attention of more people on that day. So we can thank Luther for working to redeem a cultural moment and a cultural holiday for the glory of God because that's what he was doing when he nailed that 95 theses to the door. And on Reformation Sunday, like today, it's almost heresy to not at least quote Martin Luther, um, and I'm not going to do it. Uh, I, just, I just mentioned him to you, so that's good enough. Instead, I'm going to take time to introduce you to a different German pastor uh, that I would guess fewer of you have actually heard of. Uh, his name is Paul Robert Schneider. Anybody heard of Paul Robert Schneider? One hand, a couple hands, going one, going once, going twice, no, one. Paul Robert Schneider was the very first Protestant minister, German minister, to actually be killed in a Nazi prison. What was his crime? Was he inciting a political revolution? Was he gathering a band of people underground as a form of resistance? No. Paul Robert Schneider was imprisoned for demanding the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection. And to understand why that would land him in prison, and as we'll see in a minute, cost him his life, you've got to understand a little bit more about the folklore that grew up in and around the entire Nazi regime. There was a guy during that time known as, whose name was Hurst Wetzel. Some of you might be more familiar with Wetzel. Wetzel is actually the one who wrote the anthem that would become the anthem for the Nazi party and its flag. He was a member of the famed Stormtrooper Brigade of Nazi soldiers. Um, Wetzel died, and, and after his death, having kind of written that song that became venerated as an anthem, uh, Nazi efforts to kind of build this mythology and folklore in the party began to disseminate the notion that Wetzel didn't really die. He was actually alive and he was leading a celestial band of stormtroopers in the sky. 
And this sounds crazy to us, but it became so deeply ingrained with, with Nazi folklore that it became one of the tenets that people had to profess confidence in as they became a member of the Nazi party. And so that being the case, Paul Robert Schneider was a small town German preacher. And one day he was called to do the funeral of a 17-year-old boy who had been a member of the Nazi brigade and who had died. He was performing this funeral, and as they came to the benediction in the service, a present member, kind of a, a more of a leader in the Nazi brigade in that region, stood up at that point in the service, unannounced, not asked for on his own, stood up while Schneider was getting ready to do the benediction, and this is what he said. This young man has risen in spirit to join Wetzel and the troopers in the celestial skies. Everybody was just as quiet as you are right now. Snyder, presiding over the service, protested. He stood back up and he said, This is the church of Jesus for the pure teaching of the scriptures and no one will rival Jesus here. For that, Snyder was imprisoned. He would be imprisoned off and on for the better part of the next 10 to 15 years, ultimately being transferred to Buchenwald, which many of you have probably heard of. It was there at Buchenwald after he had been tortured, he had been imprisoned, he had been intimidated, that he was ultimately locked in solitary confinement. And his wife would write his biography years after his death. And it was known of Snyder in those days that even in solitary confinement, when the, when the guards would do the roll calls in the morning for those that were in the rooms along the hallway, Snyder would always answer by proclaiming the gospel, landing in particular on the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection every single morning. And for it, he would be beaten. He would be tortured, and he would undergo any and all number of things in the hands of his imprisoners. He would continue to do this his entire time at Buchenwald. He would write to his wife and to his kids whenever he was allowed, and his wife, in, his, in her biography of her husband, included some of these letters. And one of the letters that he wrote, he said this, he said, keep on praying that God, in his love and mercy, may bring your father back. But even if God keeps us waiting a while for the fulfillment of our prayers, we must never think that he does not hear us. And we must not tire just because it takes long. Though God helps not in every deed, he's there in every hour of need because he is our risen Lord. He is with us now. This is what Paul Robert Schneider continued to profess day after day while he was imprisoned until he received the lethal injection at the hands of the Nazi guards. And he gave his life for the uniqueness of Jesus, for the truth of the real Jesus. And I thought about Paul Robert Schneider. I had read that story years and years ago. There is a book, it's hard to get, it is his biography, but I'd read his story in another writing that someone had, was telling. And I thought about it this week because you know, it's Reformation Sunday, and I thought about Luther, and I, I thought about Schneider. And as I began to think about even our text for the morning this morning, I, I began to think what, what causes someone to live like this? I mean, where does this come from? It would cost Luther everything, it would cost Schneider everything. I mean, he didn't do what he did even there in solitary confinement day after day simply because it was his job as a pastor. I know as a pastor that that's true because I'm not sure if I was in his position, I would do the same thing. 
So I know it wasn't simply obligation to the job. What, what causes someone to, to live like this? Well, it comes from a heart that's been captivated by something bigger than itself. It's the very thing we saw happen with the early church. One historian said the Christian church was not the result of planning or development. The Christian church was the fallout of an explosion of joy, a radioactive fallout that wasn't lethal, but it healed people as it came down. In the early church, people just like you and just like me and just like Luther and just like Schneider, they lived their lives testifying to the reality that something supernatural had occurred in their heart. And what had occurred beyond them produced in them a way of living, a a, a love, a, a generosity, a courage, a sacrifice, a hope that those who were outside of the church had no category for. They simply couldn't make sense of it. And over and over again, the question was asked, what's happened to you? Why would you do this? While he was in prison, his fellow prisoners would ask, Schneider over and over again, why do you continue to do this? Why do you keep preaching like this, knowing what's going to happen to you? What made the difference? Well, in John chapter 11, where we're going to be this morning, we we not only come to our next I am statement of Jesus that we're looking at in our series, but we come face to face with what makes the difference. We come face to face with the difference maker. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to John chapter 11. Boy, if we've ever needed a reminder of this, it's now. John chapter 11 starts off this way in verse 1. It's going to be familiar to many of you, but let's just take our time with it a little bit. John begins it this way. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is is very sick. And, And there's something I just want to point out here for you as you're reading your Bible. John, particularly in his gospel, if you spend any time reading John's gospel, his his letter of Jesus' life and ministry, John is very particular about certain things. He likes to point out details, people's names, places where things occurred, and you you shouldn't just read quickly by these things, and it's not just because details matter to the story, which they do, and we'll see in a minute, it's important because the details are there in the first place, because these are real people in real places. This is a real place and a real family who knew the real Jesus, who loved them and who loved them back. They matter because they're there. And so here, as he begins this particular story in the life of Jesus, we're reminded of a real place where Jesus was and a real group of family, a real group of people who loved him and whom he loved, who he was very, very close to. And for time's sake, we we can't get as detailed into this story as many of you would like. John chapter 11 literally is a chapter of the Bible out of which entire books are written. There is so much here. It's amazing. And you're going to get mad that I don't do something you're familiar with in this if you grew up in the church and you're familiar with the story. But suffice it to say, here's what I want you to catch as we get started. The intensity 
in the life of Jesus, in the intensity, in the story of Jesus, is rising to a crescendo in Mark's gospel here. We're at the last bit of Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 12, Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem for the last time, where he will be crucified. So in John chapter 11, as John has woven his story together, he's presenting us with the story of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus right before he moves into John chapter 12 where Jesus will go and die. So there's something that John is weaving together that he wants us to have in mind and to see, and the intensity is building. And so Jesus hears that his dear friend whom he loved is sick. And in verse 4, John tells us, but when Jesus heard this said, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it, which was not the expected answer, right? But Jesus is giving them, I couldn't come up with a better word in between services, but he's giving them a clue of sorts that a sign is going to be displayed. This sickness of Lazarus doesn't glorify God in itself. It's through this sickness that God intends to glorify his son. This is what's about to happen. What Jesus is saying is what is about to happen is meant to stir, it's meant to engender, it's meant to deepen your confidence in me. That's what he's saying to them. And so John goes on in verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, verse six, so means because he loved them. That's what it means. That's grammar, right? Jesus loved them, so. So because of his love, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he, what did he do? He catch the first donkey back? No. Because he loved them, he stayed two days longer where he was. Now that's not the expected response either, is it? So verse 7 Then after he said this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? It's not a good idea, Jesus. I mean, flip back just one page, maybe however your Bible falls right there. But in John chapter 10, at the end of John chapter 10, Jesus has been in the temple from John 7 through John 10, teaching and causing all kinds of problems to the religious leaders. And in John 10, 39 and, or 31, and then again in 39, I think it is, they pick up stones to stone him. Then they seek to arrest him. And Jesus has to leave. And it says he goes to the Bethany where John had been baptizing previously, which is where we found him when the story started. So they're trying to kill him where he came from. And now he's saying, we're going to go back. And they're saying, ah, not a great idea, Jesus. But Jesus answered them in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Doubtless they understood what he was saying, but Jesus was reminding them that he is the light of the world. And He is walking perfectly in his Father's will for him. And as long as he's walking in his Father's will for him, he's walking in the light. As long as he's walking in the light of his Father's will, no harm can come to him that is not a part of what his Father has purposed for him. That's what he's saying to them. He probably could have said it more clearly, but this is what he said. So verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. 
I love the disciples. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Like, why are you going to wake him up, right? Like, when our kids are sick and they're sleeping, it's like, no, I'm going to wake him up. You don't need to go to school today. It's fine. Just sleep. What you need is sleep. So they're like, oh, problem solved, Jesus. He's going to recover. We don't need to go back to Judea. We don't need to go where they want to arrest and kill you and stone you. We're good where we are. Now, verse 13, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So even there, we're we're reminded a bit of this uniqueness of Jesus. No one came and told him Lazarus had died. But he knew this because of who he is. And so verse 16, Thomas called the twin. Again, you got to love these guys. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, John, who's writing this, being one of them, let us also go that we may die with him. So it's still all about them, right? Be encouraged. You're not alone in that, right? Don't go there, Jesus. It's dangerous for you, which means it's dangerous for me too. Okay, let's all go and die with Jesus. And Thomas has his brave heart moment. But he still thinks it's all about him. I love the guys, right? So verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now this is where details matter. Why would John even indicate that? What difference does it make? Well, here's why details matter. Where Jesus was when he got the news, where Lazarus is as he is dying, is about 110 miles away from each other. In those days, it would have been a three to four day journey, usually four days. It really kind of depended upon the weather. So if you sit and just think about it and do the math for a second, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. And what does he do? He waits two days. In two days, he tells the disciples, we're going to go back because he's dead. Then it takes four days to get where he's going. And let's just give him three. That means that if Jesus had left immediately when he heard that Lazarus is sick, he still would have been dead when he got there because it takes him at least three days to get there, right? So why wait? Like, what's the point in waiting two days? Why is he so insistent about that if when he left immediately, he still would have been dead? I mean, even if he had got there sooner, maybe he could have softened or spared or somehow helped the the emotional turmoil and grief that Mary and Martha were going through, or or maybe not heightened and intensified it by not waiting so long. So, So why wait? Well, in their day, a superstition had grown amongst the Jewish people, all right? They had begun to believe that when someone died, their soul would hover around the body for three days, looking to re-enter the body until, quote, the body changed. That's the decomposition process. You see, in those days, especially where they were, when someone died because of the temperature and the climate, the burial, the entombment, however the family was to deal with the body, often happened on the day of death. Because the heat and the climate would intensify the process of death. But they didn't have stethoscopes and EKGs and paddles to plug into. So on occasion, not often, the diagnosis of death was a little premature. And people would be in the wicker reed basket casket or being placed into a carved-out tomb for the wealthy, 
And at some point, their heart, which had not stopped, it had just gotten so faint, it was hard to detect. And the breath that had gotten so shallow, you couldn't really hear, it had revived. And that person knocking on the cast, you know, you know, I'm not dead. On occasion, that was known to happen. And this superstition grew up around it. John is pointing out these details intentionally. Jesus is making a decision intentionally because when he gets to where Lazarus is and does what he's going to do, he's going to make sure that everyone understands Lazarus is dead, dead. Completely dead. No question about it. Because if you're familiar with the story, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, no one has any room at all to go, Yeah, well, it was a little early. Maybe it was off. This is why Jesus stayed. This is why he took the time he did. He's intentionally making this decision. And so in verse 18, John tells us that Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So we know that people are, a lot of people are coming from the city out two miles to where they are. They had a pretty high standing in the city. This is a pretty well-known, probably well-to-do, well-off family with a lot of connections, and a lot of people are coming out there. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and she met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now, this is an absolute role reversal of behavior if you're familiar with the stories of Mary and Martha. And the stories of Mary and Martha, Martha has demonstrated herself to be the rule follower, not Mary. When Jesus came to the house, Martha was the one who, according to custom, made sure everything was straight, cooked for Jesus and cooked for the disciples. It was Mary who sat at Jesus' feet while Martha did all the work. You remember the story? But here in the Jewish custom, some of you might be familiar with, the custom of Shiva, and the family sits in the home after someone has died, and the mourners, friends, family come for a period of days and nights to the home to be with them, and they don't leave their house. But not today, not Martha. Today, Martha is not going to be the rule follower. Mary is going to be the rule follower today, not her. She hears that he's coming, and she leaves, and she goes to him. And in verse 21, she finds him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You've got to read it like a human for a minute. She and her sister have just gone through something and are in the midst of something, but have just gone through the height of something so horrific that I really don't think there are very many of us in the room this morning who have been to places in this world that maybe a little more viscerally, viscerally familiar with what's going on here. I mean, there was no palliative care for Lazarus. Whatever sickness and illness took his life, it seemed to have come on quick and taken it quick. Those aren't nice things. What they have seen, what they have heard, what they have smelled, what they have witnessed, as they were there with their brother watching his life go away. It's been awful. They sent messengers to Jesus to tell him, he's got to come, he's got to get here. And the messengers get back and what do they say? Oh, he just stayed and kept teaching. 
I mean, the one thing he could think to do, you've seen what he's done in the past. You, you've seen where he, what he's done. You've seen how he's spoken and how he's acted. You love him. He loves you. You go to him, and he just stays? That's what's happening here. Behind this, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, is where were you, Jesus? Where were you? But even now, she says in verse 22, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And I want to be careful here because we have to be careful when we read these stories. None of us know Martha's heart. We don't truly know what is going on in one another's hearts. Only God does. The best that we can do is to try to understand what might have been going on by trying to understand the situation. And we know from the flow of the story that when Martha makes this profession here to Jesus, makes this statement to Jesus, she's not expecting Jesus to raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. We know that because later in the story, we're not going to get to it this morning, but you can go read it. Later in the story, when Jesus tells them to roll the stone back that's covering Lazarus' grave, Martha is the one that says, don't do it. It's going to smell too bad. So we know that in the moment, she's not making this statement saying, well, I know if you just ask, he'll, he'll do it. I think that what's happening is something very common to all of us when we find ourselves in a place of disappointment and sorrow and loss. I think she is saying something that is very true and something she actually believes. But in the moment, I think it's something she knows she's supposed to say and something she's supposed to believe. I think this is one of those moments when relational intimacy with Jesus in the moment of pain and sorrow and even disappointment is too difficult, it's too hard, it'll cost too much to try to get there, and so it's easier just to go, well, I know God's sovereign, and turn that thing off and keep walking. Well, he's sovereign, I know it, he works all things out together for his glory and our good, it's true. And I think you believe it. But in the moment sometimes, it's the numbing of our heart and our numbing of our pain and the numbing of our emotion because the intimacy of going, where were you? And listening and understanding is, is too hard. I think that's what's happening with Martha here. And so Jesus, he, he loves her. He looks at her. Verse 23, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I mean, Martha is a good Jewish theologian. Don't miss it. She knows her stuff, and I truly think she believes it. But there is more being said there than we might catch in what she is saying. So let's stop for a minute, and let me try to catch you up to everything that's kind of under this story and under what Martha is saying right here. When Martha says that I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Martha is expressing a biblical, an Old Testament biblical view and understanding of death and who God is. The Bible is very clear, and it was very clear for Martha, that death is an inescapable reality for all of us. Eat however you want. Paleo, keto, vegan, it doesn't matter. Do yoga, do CrossFit, get a Botox subscription, color whatever you want, lift whatever you want, but 
you can't escape this reality. Death is an inescapable reality for all of us. And when we're left to ourselves, if we're really honest, across the the scope of humanity, death produces a deep fear in the human soul. And right now, there are three primary ways that you and I, in the the part of the world and the time that we find ourselves in, a, a technologically advanced Western culture, there are three primary ways that we tend to deal with this reality. The first one is to deny it. We simply do whatever we can or whatever we have to to deny its reality. It is, I think, the greatest conspiracy of silence among us. We just won't talk about death. One writer said, For society's sake, we must hide the unbearable disturbance caused by the ugliness of dying. People need to believe that life is happy. Friends, that is the bleakest admission of true despair I think I've read about this whole thing. What what he's trying to say is if anybody begins to actually admit to themselves the inevitability of their own death, then there'll be no joy left for them in life. So what do we do? We deny it. Don't talk about it. It's not pleasant to talk about death. It's not even pleasant to talk about death when you're face-to-face with death with someone else. Find something else to talk about. And if we're not figuring out different ways to try to deny it, we're figuring out different ways to try to dignify it. Make it something that it's not. I mean, this is the the secular, Eastern-influenced view of how we understand death. Death is just a natural part of life. It's just the pathway or the door or the bridge to something new or something better. Figure out some platitude that makes you feel better about what's going on and try to dignify the reality of what's actually happening. But you know as well as I do, when you come face to face with it, when you have to look it in the eyes, you know those platitudes aren't true. You know it's a lie. And so if we're not trying to deny it, not trying to dignify it, a lot of us are falling into deep despair over it. Just deep, deep despair because we're coming face to face with the inescapable reality of it. But Martha also knew not just that it was inescapable, but she knew the Bible also taught that it came as a consequence of sin. Death came as a consequence of our rebellion that says I should be in charge of my life. I mean, in essence, that is the lie that was swallowed in the garden. You should be in charge of your life. And from that point forward, each of us is born believing that lie. Death is the consequence of sin. A sinner is just someone who lives with this sense of perpetual treason against God, believing that they should be their own Lord and their own King. But you didn't create yourself, you don't own yourself. Death is the consequence of our continued claim to be our own Lord. And we're born believing this treasonous lie. And the Bible also says we're born spiritually dead in that sin and in that lie. So when Martha says, I know he's going to be raised at the resurrection of the grave, there's a lot behind it. Because she knew that not only did it come because of sin, but it is our worst enemy. There's nothing inherently good about death itself. You know When you're near it, it's not a friend. 
that it's nothing to be dignified, it's nothing to be denied, it's nothing to be despaired over, it's something that has to be defeated. And Martha was expressing that reality in what she said because the Bible is very clear, even in the Old Testament, that God alone has the power over death. Over and over in the Old Testament, and it's unique to God's people, unique to God's word, there was this promise of a day that was to come when all who had physically died would be physically raised and their soul would be united with a physically raised body where they would live unto God in eternal life or in eternal judgment. She knew this to be true, that death doesn't get the last word, God gets the last word. This is all woven into this statement that Martha makes here. She's just being a really good theologian. And Jesus takes it, and listen to what he says, verse 25. Jesus said to Martha, I am. This is our statement. He takes for himself in the moment, once again, the covenant name of God. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus began to direct Martha's attention away from this general theological truth that her heart had grasped and began to focus her belief to him. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just a destiny, Martha. It's my identity. I am the resurrection. He explains what that means in the next statement that he makes when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's saying, I am, Martha. I get the last word. Death doesn't get the last word. I will resurrect anyone who believes in me. There is a bodily, physical resurrection to eternal life awaiting all who believe in me. That body will not succumb to disease. It will not succumb again to death. It will not succumb to the consequences of sin. I am the resurrection. But then he said something else, and they're two different things. I think I'm guilty of reading these two things together all the time for years. But they're actually two different things. I am the life, Martha. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is that quality of life. This is the word he uses, that quality of life that John keeps pointing out in these I am statements. This is eternal life. Everyone who believes in me, Jesus says, I give this quality of life, this eternal life, I give it to them now. Now. This life, when it's given, never stops. When your physical body dies and goes into the grave, your, your spiritual soul, this new life, it goes to be in the presence of God until the day comes when, as I promised, that physical body is resurrected in the new, perfect, resurrected body, and that soul is united with it. It's as though you never died. This is the promise that he's making. He is the promise for both our spiritually dead hearts and our mortal bodies. 
And he looks at Martha and he says, do you believe this? Listen, friends, the resurrection life now and forever that Jesus says is in him and he is offering to us, it comes to us through the doorway of this word believe, period. Be very clear about what he said to Martha and what he asked her. He didn't say, do you understand me, Martha? He didn't say, do you think you deserve this, Martha? He didn't even say, do you agree with me, Martha? He said, do you believe me? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is offering to Martha himself. He's offering himself to us this morning. And I want us to be very careful here. If I could think of anything that we might be guilty of here, it's confusing agreeing with Jesus and believing in Jesus. Agreeing with Jesus about this is not the same thing as believing into Jesus in these things. Agreement about these things, it doesn't produce the kind of change, the fallout of joy that leads to the kind of lives that demand an answer from the people around us as to what made the difference and causes us to live with a kind of sacrifice and generosity and love and courage and hope that no one else has an answer for or an explanation for. Agreement doesn't do that. Agreement puts us in the place where we can judge something that we think we might agree with or not agree with and have space to disagree with something over here. That's not what he's talking about. Believing into Jesus, which is what the language actually says, is entirely different. It's letting the entirety of your whole self, your whole weight, believe into, fall into, sink into who he is. It's an entirely different thing. Believing into leads to actually living a resurrection life not just a survivalist one. Believing that he is the resurrection and the life is what frees you and I from treating this world as though it's our only real chance for happiness and significance. Believing into Jesus that he truly is the resurrection and the life changes everything then about how you and I think and then live with regards to things like what real love is, what real intimacy is, what real courage is, what real generosity is, what real sacrifice is. It changes everything about those things. It frees us to make hard decisions and do hard things to serve other people at a cost to ourselves. Why? Because we believe that he is the resurrection and the life. And we have believed into him with all that we are. And we know that nothing can take him away from us and us away from him. And it sets us free. This is what he's talking about. Maybe you and I need to repent of trying to agree with Jesus. And ask him in his grace and by his spirit to help us to believe. It was Tim Keller who famously wrote that the essence of Christianity is in personal pronouns. He said the son of God was born, he died, he was raised, he ascended, and he's coming again. But agreeing with that doesn't make you a Christian. But if you say the son of God was born for me, he died for me, he was raised for me, 
he was ascended to the right hand of the Father for me, and he's going to come again for me. That's the essence of Christianity. You have to believe into Jesus that he lived, that he died, that he was raised for you. Do you believe this? That was the question of the moment for Martha. In verse 27, Martha said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. What a confession. Friends, is that your confession here this morning? Is it yours? For all who would believe into him, Jesus gives resurrection life. Yes, a physical, bodily resurrection to look forward to. I can't even get my head around that. A physically resurrected body that is not going to succumb to sickness and disease, but will live in the presence of God and with the saints for all of eternity? I can't even get my head around that. Yes, for all who believe into him, he gives resurrection life. And on that day when our bodies are raised and our souls are united with our resurrected bodies and together as a people, as the church, as his sheep, we get to turn and taunt death together? Oh, death, where is your sting? It has no hold on me. Oh, grave, where is your victory? What a day, but it's not it. That's not all. For all who believe into Jesus, he gives spiritual resurrection life now. A kind of life that once it starts, it never goes out. The very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead three days after he died in our place for our sins takes up residence in you. And as he takes up residence in you and gives you a new heart with new desires and new wants that look and sound more and more like that which pleases God and brings him joy, he changes you bit by bit, glory by glory, into the increasing likeness of Christ until the day comes when our faith that has leaned everything into Jesus finally becomes sight. And we're with him. And we see him. It's the promise of the resurrection and life. Until that day, because he is the resurrection and the life, all who believe into Jesus are set free to take risks for the glory of God, to live a life that defies explanation, to live with a love and an intensity that causes people around you to say, what in the world has made the difference? Like the early church, like Luther, like Schneider. Why do you do this? You and I are set free to move past a survivalist spirituality that just wants to hold on and hunker down and, and just wait. And we get to live in the joy and the freedom of a resurrection reality. We get to testify to the resurrection life for the resurrection power, the death-defeating power that God has given us in his son, one meal at a time, one person at a time, one new decision at a time, 
one new change motivation at a time, even if it costs us our life. We can live that way because we know he is the resurrection and the life. We can live in a way that begs the question and that gives us the freedom to testify to the one who is the resurrection and the life. Friends, in just a moment, for all who have believed into Jesus, you're going to be invited to come forward to receive communion, to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in our place for our sins, dip it in a cup, remembering his blood shed for our forgiveness. And when we do these things together, we are being reminded and we're, we're giving testimony, we're professing our confidence of believing into him that he died the death we deserve to die. He paid the price we deserve to pay for our sins and in his death in our place, in our resurrection from the grave, he has defeated death itself. We're proclaiming our confidence that he is the resurrection and the life. So the musicians are gonna come up and begin to play We're going to give you in just a moment a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word, to pray where you are, and then we're going to invite those who have believed into Jesus to come forward, to profess their confidence in him by receiving communion. And we're going to sing together, and we're going to celebrate, and then we're going to be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us real quick, and then we'll we'll continue. Father, this morning we... We need you by your Holy Spirit to do work in our heart, to move us from a place of simply trying to agree with everything about Jesus to letting all of our weight down into him, believing into him, to move away from a position of judgment and authority over what he says and our agreement with it to believing that he is the resurrection and life. Lord, help us this morning to know and believe your death-defeating power alive and at work in our lives today. Lord, it takes the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts for this to happen. So we ask for Jesus' good name and glory, for our deepest and most abiding joy, that you would do this in each heart this morning as you know needs to be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.